Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for May 24th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll discuss the latest film and TV news and try to answer a question in the mailbag. And uh, I will run an exclusive interview with Ron Howard, director of Solo, A Star Wars Story. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Sarda. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, just you and me today. Uh, it's a slow news day, so I thought... Um, uh, since you've wrote all the stories that, <laughs> that I wanted to talk about, uh, it, it only makes sense to have you as the, the, the only guest on today's podcast. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, I think yesterday or the day before we were talking about Michael Bay's six underground. This is the, the movie that Netflix has bought from Michael Bay. Uh, and I think during that podcast, we kind of theorized that, uh, I think it was Jacob that theorized that Netflix is going to be, you know, the future uh, company that buys all the or like is the company that P- the filmmakers go to to make their original projects and not franchise adaptations, sequels. And uh, at the time, I think he mentioned, you know, mid budget. But uh, it looks like Netflix is trying to go big. What do we know, Ben? Yes. So Six Underground, which is Michael Bay's new movie, it's written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, the same guys who wrote the Deadpool movies, and it stars Ryan Reynolds, also the star of Deadpool, is going to be the most expensive Netflix original movie yet. Uh, Some new details have quietly emerged about this film, and the budget is supposed to be in the $150 million range. So that is a lot more than $90 million, which was previously the highest uh, amount that Netflix had spent on a movie, and they spent ninety million on David Ayer's Bright last year. So from ninety to one fifty is is a pretty big jump. We also know that Martin Scorsese's highly anticipated film, The Irishman, is supposed to be coming out sometime, maybe this year, maybe next year. That movie has a budget of one hundred and forty million dollars, but even uh, you know we're we're not sure what that film is going to end up at because it's still he's still working on it right now. And I've actually heard that it's 140 million and climbing. So I, I don't know where that climb is going to end. But as of right now, 150 million dollars for 
six underground is the most amount of money that Netflix will have spent on an original movie. Now, you know, I just love that there is a company out there willing to spend that much money on an original property of some kind. I I know that many listeners out there are probably, uh, you know, just writing this off. Oh, it's Michael Bay. It's not going to be any good. You know, blah, blah, blah. But it is an original Michael Bay movie. And I, I, I very much enjoy uh, the Michael Bay original movies like Pain and Gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, how long do you think it's going to take before Netflix gets into the franchise business where they are, I mean, obviously Disney owns Star Wars and Amazon owns Lord of the Rings at this point, but, um, you know, maybe one day, like, uh, Netflix could produce the next Harry Potter movie. Like, hmm. do you think that's a possibility? Like something big like that? Uh, it's interesting. I don't know because those other studios own a lot of those properties. I, I don't know how likely it is that something like a Harry Potter or something in that realm would ever go like make the jump to Netflix. But it, it's interesting that you mentioned franchises because there six underground is actually being eyed as the start of a new franchise. So, and we also of know course that, it is. that, yeah, <laughs> naturally and bright, uh, the Will Smith movie that we just mentioned that Netflix also spent a ton of money on last year is also getting a sequel. So it, it's not like, Netflix has never is not already in the franchise business. They're just trying to cultivate their own original properties. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, they don't really have that much incentive to make good movies. They just need flashy, buzzworthy. uh, I mean, look at the Cloverfield paradox as an example, right? Like we talked about that when that movie came out earlier this year. It seems insane that that movie came out this year. It seems so long ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, that's one of those things where like it got everybody talking. The movie wasn't great, but it got people interested in, in talking about Netflix and that's all they want, right? It's just like more subscribers and, and to keep the subscribers that they currently have. So I hope that, they'll take an example like six underground and, and try to turn it into an actual good movie. But like my fear with Netflix spending this much money on movies is that they're just doing it for the name recognition of, Oh, we have a Michael Bay, Ryan Reynolds movie and they're, they don't actually care that much about quality. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say at this point because they're still relatively young when it comes yeah. to making uh, big budget original movies. So we still have to, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. But um, what do you think about that? I mean, I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, they are just trying to serve up a menu that they can put on. You know, we have a Michael Bay movie. Um, I also wonder, you know, there's a lot. uh, Netflix, I think, was the company that kind of started that TV revolution of saving TV shows that had been canceled elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering if uh, if there is a future where Netflix could do that in the feature film realm. Like, you know, there's a lot of movies get announced by big studios and uh for whatever reason the studio decides not to make it and the filmmakers are still interested in it uh i'm wondering if there if there could be one day where netflix you know steps in and uh you know kind of saves these these feature film projects from development hell yeah that's um that's interesting and and that seems like something that uh is a lot more likely to happen than i like i'm i would not be surprised if we start hearing uh, stories like that very very soon like or or, uh, the... or even like franchises like um not that this is a good example of a good movie but the triple x franchise with vin diesel um you know was originally made at uh i forget which studio but then uh you know paramount picked it up and i think now vin diesel owns the rights and he's going to be uh developing his own triple x movies so mm-hmm. i mean like I, maybe there are franchises out there that 
could, uh, you know, be snapped yeah. up by Netflix. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's probably a good a good uh, guess for one as well, because Netflix is really uh, in the past couple of years has. I mean, we've known that they've had like uh, full market saturation in America for a long time, but they've they've been making some moves to try to establish their international um, audience and and try to expand into global territories. And the idea of the Triple X franchise is especially appealing to them, I'm sure, because the Triple uh, X Return of Xander Cage brought in, you know, people like Donnie Yen and Tony Jaa and like these international martial arts superstars into that fold. So the idea that they would be uh, reaching out to try to appeal to Brazilian audiences and Chinese audiences and all that stuff would make a lot of sense for Netflix. So I, I would not be surprised if that is like an exact thing that comes to pass in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to keep an eye on Netflix and what they're doing with their movie division. I feel like so far they've had a better track record in TV. Um, but let's let's we, we've been talking a lot recently about Movie Pass and uh, also their competitor Cinemia. Uh, Cinemia has announced that they're going to be introducing a cardless ticket reservation system. What does that even mean, Ben? Yeah, so um, Cinemia was recently, we wrote earlier this week about how they were having some trouble keeping up with high demand. So uh, for those who don't know, we've talked a ton about MoviePass, so I'm sure everybody knows what that is. You pay like a $9.99 a month subscription fee and you get to go see as many movies as you want. That's the the basic gist in in a month. Um, Cinemia has different pricing structures. They offer some plans for as low as $4.99 a month and there are some trade-offs. You don't get to see one movie a day I think it's only limited to maybe three movies a month or yeah, something they, like that. They have different uh, plans that give you different amount of movies a month. Right. And the, the trade-offs are, while MoviePass won't let you see a movie more than once, Cinemia does let you do that. It also works with any theater in the country, and you can reserve your tickets online beforehand. You don't have to physically be at the location like you do with MoviePass. So, I mean, there's really like a balance of... It's just whatever program works for you. But there, there's this this battle for supremacy in the movie ticket subscription game. And these two are like the chief rivals at the moment. So uh, Cinemia recently was experiencing some trouble because they were uh, people were flocking to the service and trying to uh, become new members. And Cinemia is supposed to be sending them physical membership cards. And the, the, the demand was so great that there were these huge delays for people receiving their cards. And that sounds very familiar because that ex- same exact thing happened to MoviePass last year when they uh, really sort of took off with their new pricing plans. So instead of just shrugging their shoulders and sacrificing customer service altogether like MoviePass seemingly did last year, Cinemia actually is looking to do something about that and actually fix the problem. So today they announced uh, something called Cinemia Cardless, which is a new feature that allows their customers to reserve tickets online, even if their membership card hasn't arrived in the mail yet. It's it's basically just you can log into the app and get like a use a digital card essentially to oh, so go it, ahead like, and provides you with like a temporary card number or something. I think that's right. Yes. Um, so yeah, they're they're. Uh, people, their CEO and and the people, the team that works for the company is basically saying like, we realize that there's this huge demand and we want our customers to be be able to, you know, jump in and and actually use our service right away. So we're introducing this plan where people can, um, you know, all subscribers right now, it's, it's available right this second with a paid account can select the movie and showtime through the app and use this digital one-time only payment information that's associated with their account to finish their checkout process. 
you know, it, it could end up that Cinemia will be the survivor, you know, by next year. The Movie Pass, uh, the parent company of Movie Pass, their stock has like tumbled. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been um, uh, pretty drastic, and uh, a lot of people are speculating how how much longer they can last. Um, I I just wonder, you know, if this company does go out of business, are are they going to sell? They have so many subscribers at this point, Movie Pass. Like, I would think that they would sell it to someone. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's not. And there's also all these subscribers who have signed up for year long subscriptions. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be an interesting situation if, you know, this does fail, because I think someone would want that subscriber base. Maybe Cinemia, maybe AMC, you know, someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's to too much. There's too much data there to leave on the table. So I'm sure somebody will come along and buy it. I just don't know if that will result in the program as we know it existing and just that data existing and, and sort of, tr- you know, changing hands from one company to another. But yeah. uh, it's but it I, might I, I it might subs- get messy. I don't know. I don't think it's just da- data. I think subscribers is something that like a lot of these companies are competing for, you know, like companies like Uber are not even making a profit right now. It's all about, you know, their subscriber base and that being worth something, you know, in the future. So, uh mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see. We'll keep an eye on this. Uh, let's talk about George R. R. Martin. He is developing another movie because he just has no time to write uh, The Winds of Winter, as you put in your headline. <laughs> uh, what is going on here? Yeah, so he's working on a an animated adaptation of a short story that he wrote called The Ice Dragon. And uh, he wrote this in 1980, which is well before A Game of Thrones, which is the first book in the Song of Ice and Fire novel series on which uh, the, the HBO series is based. And that was first published in 1996. So this uh, The Ice Dragon is not set within the world of Westeros, which is the fictional world in Game of Thrones. It takes place in an entirely different world, but it does feature, obviously, an ice dragon. And there's uh, I'll read you this a uh, little bit of the synopsis from the book from Amazon. Um Let's see. Oh, it's interesting because, well, I'll get to that. Here we go. In the world of, uh, of a song in ice and fire, the ice dragon was a creature of legend and fear for no man had ever tamed one. But when it flew overhead, it left in its wake desolate, cold and frozen land. Adara was not afraid for Adara was a winter child born during the worst freeze that anyone, even the old ones, could remember. So it's very like George R. R. Martin-y in that way. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's definitely like a precursor to the the type of writing that he would do in a song of ice and fire. But while this it's interesting because this book description says that this is straight from the publisher too on Amazon. And it's, it claims that this book is actually set within the world of Westeros and this, the game of Thrones world. But George R. R. Martin himself actually said in a comment on his blog that the two properties are not set in the same universe. So it seems like these publishers are trying to just capital. Like, I don't know the, the huh. short story was originally published in 1980, but it was repackaged into a, a children's book in 2007. And then again in 2014. So it seems like maybe they're trying to capitalize on some of the success of game of Thrones and just being like, Hey, come check this out. This George R. R. Martin dragon property. You recognize this, right? So, uh, I don't know. There's some, some Wait. shifty stuff going on there. So but, how, how is Martin involved? with this uh he is actually involved in the making of this movie he's just going to be a producer on this film and this is for warner brothers animation so we don't know who's going to be writing or directing the movie yet but we know that uh martin is producing it and you know as you mentioned he's supposed to be theoretically working on the winds of winter which is the next book in the song of ice and fire uh song of ice and fire franchise and 
fans have been waiting on that book for years and years. I think the last one came out in 2011. And uh, meanwhile, he's busy working on a ton of different projects. Sci-Fi is adapting uh, a version of Night Flyers, which is another book that he wrote into a new TV show. And of course, Game of Thrones returns for its final season next year. So, uh, yeah, we don't know anything anymore about this Ice Dragon plot or when exactly we're going to see this movie. But it's just one more thing on Martin's plate that uh, is not him sitting down and finishing up (laughs) the book series that fans are really waiting for him to finish. Of course. Uh, And yesterday on the podcast, we talked about the possibility of Universal uh, creating a Star Trek uh, themed land to compete with Disney's Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Today we have some news on Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, uh, some patents from uh, from Disney basically outlining how they're going to go full Westworld with branching narratives. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so this uh, a fan site pointed us to a patent from the Walt Disney Company for what is called a procedural system for emergent narrative construction. And I'm not going to read the actual <laughs> patent, but uh, the basic translation of all of this legalese is that Disney is trying to create the system that will tell a story to guests in a virtual space in the park. And artificial intelligence might be employed to sort of shape and refine what that story is each time It's told. So uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the lightsaber um, blades. Did we talk about this on the podcast? No, we we didn't. Okay. So I was talking to Jacob about this uh, off mic. But so earlier this week, um, one of these other patents that came up was this notion of uh, Disney is developing this technology to uh, theoretically have augmented reality lightsabers in the park where Guests would wear, and this is all still theoretical, nothing has been officially announced by Disney yet. I just want to throw this out there as a caveat. This is still just like patent technology. Um, so this is all sort of like theoretical where it, where things might end up. But the thought right now is that they could develop these helmets where uh, people in the park could walk around and wear these helmets and basically have a handheld lightsaber in their hands and like ignite it. And you could see through the helmet, like this, this heads up display visor kind of thing. You could see the blade in your hand and it would react, you know, to your movements and stuff sort of similar to what universal does with the wands at the Harry Potter, uh, at the wizarding world of Harry Potter, where there are sections of the park that interact with the wands that you have there if you buy one from the park there's like this electronic connection between different fountains for example where you could sort of like stand in one spot and wave your wand and like the water would come on in the fountain that kind of thing you can suppose you're supposed to be able to like you know uh utter a spell and turn on the fountain so the idea that the idea here is that you would have this uh lightsaber uh, augmented reality helmet technology and this this whole thing about the branching narratives is that This patent allows uh, Disney to tell these stories in little bits and and chunks and break up elements of story. And really, you should just go to Slash Film and read this because (laughs) it's much easier to read and see in a graphic than it is to physically explain. But it's um, it's interesting. That graphic is almost like that that episode of Westworld where they, they were having that conversation and it was having this branching. It was showing on the computer screen you know where the conversation would go or could go next in different branches yeah it's almost like predictive text for your phone yeah uh it's interesting because they've kind of uh pitched the idea that like you could ride 
the Millennium Falcon ride, and depending on how you do, because I guess you're transporting cargo somewhere. If like you do very badly, then the uh, the person that you're transferring c- cargo for could send bounty hunters out after you, which mm-hmm. could confront you in the park elsewhere. You know, so like after you have ridden this ride, the decisions that you made on the ride could come to continue along with you throughout your adventure in in that land, which is just incredible. And I, I almost don't believe that they're going to be able to do something of that magnitude on this level with that many guests in a theme park. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems insane to me, but I'm, I'm super excited for it. Uh, do, do you think this is actually going to work in, in practicality? I think so. Yeah, I think uh, Jacob Hall was talking to us a little bit about this, and he mentioned that the that Disney uses these magic bands, which you might recall from seeing the Florida Project. There's these these bands that you uh, wear on your wrist that have all your credit card information, the park tickets, all this kind of stuff. So I feel like some of this could actually factor into this as well, where like uh, the po- the point in the narrative where each individual guest might be could be stored on this band, and then when you walk into a hotel, for example, that's connected to the Star Wars universe or a different ride or something, it could trigger these augmented reality experiences based on where you are in the in the timeline, you know. So um, I, I think there's a lot of potential there for like really outside of the box storytelling that people are not going to be expecting. And um, yeah, it, it's it's a, a kind of an exciting time in in you know, where we are in terms of like uh, theme park technology right now, it's all, it's all happening, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this magic band, it, th- that makes sense with the magic bands, but that's only in Florida, Disneyland uh, in California. They don't have those magic bands. So I'm wondering how, how a story is going to, you know, be attached to a guest and how cast members and characters are going to know about that. Like I, I, I've heard rumors that they're going to do some kind of facial recognition system. And mm. that just sounds insane. Like it just yeah. like this stuff sounds like it's like 10 years, 20 years, you know, ahead of its time. But. Yeah, and one of those things when I was writing about the uh, the lightsaber technology was in the patent, there was some verbiage in there about how it, there would be recorded, like it would be able to record your experience and then uh, essentially like package it for you and sell it back to you. Like you could maybe buy a DVD or something of of like what you see through the heads up display that you're wearing on this helmet. And then, but one of the, one of the pieces of uh, verbiage in the the patent was talking about how it would also measure things like the physiology of the individual guests, like your heart rate. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is starting to sound like the actual West world now, like a little, uh, <laughs> a little questionable, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we, we should move on to our mailbag segment. We have a, a listener named Owen from Los Angeles who has written in uh, about um, that Wall Street Journal article we talked about, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago that attributed that 70 percent of the finished film solo a Star Wars story uh, was directed by Ron Howard and 30 percent was directed by Lord Miller. Now, Owen uh, thinks that this is an, a very interesting discussion uh, because, sure, Howard shot 70% of the actual film, but he didn't cast the movie. He didn't do previs. He didn't hire the key crew, including the DP. Uh, you know, he didn't set the look and style of the film. Uh, so, you know, Lord and Miller left. But, uh, you know, is 70% of this film really Ron Howard's film? What do you think, Ben? 
I think this is an excellent point, and it's something that I did not really consider when we were talking about this last week. I think that there is a ton of work that goes into setting up a movie in the pre-production stages that uh, absolutely is is you know controlled by the director. It's like that's a director's job, especially in that phase, just to answer a million questions a day. And uh, yeah, I think that this is a really, really great point. Um, the idea that that Lord Miller did the groundwork of hiring everybody to put this movie together and Howard stepped in. I mean, I think I guess just to to put a fine point on this, I think the most amazing thing about all of this behind the scenes stuff is that when you watch the movie, I was per, like specifically looking for there to be a division, a clear division in the movie of moments that where I would be like, yep, that was Lord Miller or yep, that was Han Solo or I'm sorry, uh, Ron Howard. And it really, it felt pretty seamless to me. So in terms of, yeah, you know, I, I can't even pick out a scene that I'm like, that is definitely Ron Howard or that's definitely Lord Miller. I mean, right, and I, I, I can pick up scenes because I know uh, Paul Bedney was not on the production when Lord and Miller were involved so anything with him obviously was directed by ron howard i know that right. logically but uh interpreting it as a an art i can't uh, pick apart yeah so i think i mean i think that probably speaks more to howard's ability to blend in and and really um you know that's exactly why they hired him because they knew he was going to be a reliable guy who could step into a, a world that had already been created and get things done but i think this email raises a great point and it's it's something that we shouldn't overlook the idea that Lord and Miller actually did a ton of work on this. And yes, the 70% of the physical filming may belong to Ron Howard, but there is like an intangible amount of work that goes into, you know, doing the casting and all of that other stuff too. So uh, yeah. yeah, this is a really good point. Yeah. I, I think I've said in the podcast before, uh, I've talked to, you know, I have some filmmaker friends and, and they seem to all agree that like 50% of their job is the casting and hiring of the the key crew for their production, mm -hmm. uh, which which in reality can be more uh, you know time than the actual filming of the movie <laughs> because doing all that development process, the script, the you know has hiring the you know the yeah, cast and like sometimes filming can only last what like you know three months or something like that, and this could be like a better part of a year putting all of the the pieces in place. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm sure we could go back and see how long Lord and Miller were working on this film, and I'm sure they were on it for probably multiples more than Howard was. But um, I don't know, you know, Owen in this in this email mentions that kind of uh, maybe it's more like Howard is playing with the toys that Lord and Miller left him, um, hmm. and I think that's a good analogy, and that's something that I think. Uh, or I don't think I, I talked to Ron Howard at the, at the junket and he almost uh, agreed with that analogy in a way that, uh, you know, uh, you know what? Let's just play my interview with Ron Howard. Uh, it does have it doesn't have any uh, spoilers for the film. I'm going to cut out the spoiler part, uh, which is going to run on uh, Monday uh, on the site. Uh, so if you have not seen Solo Star Wars Story, you can still listen to this. Uh, it's mostly Howard talking about what we were just talking about. Um, you know, the unique position that he was put in coming aboard this ship so late in uh, its voyage. And uh, yes, so here is my interview with Ron Howard. Hey. How's it going, Ron? Good. How are you? That's it. That's it. So, yeah. I really enjoyed the movie. This is a different challenge 
than your typical film uh, for a number of reasons. Right. I mean, the Star Wars film, but uh, like, because you're also coming so late in the process. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, how was this different from, you know, a typical Ron Howard movie? I, I think I had to, um, it was an interesting uh, journey. Um, and um, and I, 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 uh, I, I realized I was having to, I had to rely on my instincts, um, my raw instincts, um, more than I normally normally would because I, I, I didn't have the time to prepare a movie and sort of develop a point of view about it. I, I had to I had to have a point of view, but I need to have I need I needed to have it that instant um, and without having lived with it for months or years. Um, and that was interesting um, because I had to trust those instincts. And I had you know collaborators I could turn to to as a kind of a safety net, but um, I clearly saw that uh, no, no, no one was looking for me to be a figurehead. They, you know, it's, it's not the way these these movies and Lucasfilm works. It's they they wanted they wanted the leadership, and um, so that was interesting. The other thing was I went into it feeling that um, you know I was going to apply my my experience and my professionalism to this and. And I, I really liked the story, and I believed in it, uh, but it was almost an arm's length kind of uh, of, a, of a relationship that I was going to have with this. And I, I would uh, I'd take advantage of the fact that that they needed me at a time when I wasn't planning to direct anything anyway, uh, and I would I would sort of uh, tackle it as a as a professional slash creative challenge. And it did not take long before I was all in. <laughs> and, and, and I was just as emotionally connected to what we were doing. And, and certainly by the time we went into post, and I was really seeing the movie as a whole, we went back. I, the one thing I'd ask for was to make sure that we had at least a couple of weeks to go back and be able to do some reshoots and pickups yeah. of, of, of the choices that I was making, because I knew there would be a lot of experimentation uh, and exploration. We didn't need quite all the time that, that we'd set aside, but we, but we needed, you know, I don't know, seven or eight days. And... and uh, Oh, that's right. That's not. Yeah, not 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 that much, but but it was significant, uh, and uh, and and so that it was, uh, um, you know, everything about the process was was a, a, you know, again, a little more driven by um, kind of raw instinct and and a and a, and a sort of a uh, a leadership um, a leadership style that needed to quickly cut through. The, the range of options yeah. and, and, and make decisions. Uh, and I certainly looked to, to the collaborators but, and used them, and, 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 and I rallied them. <laughs> I sort of, you know, I said, I need, I need one of you Kazans to stay here. Larry immediately turned to his yeah. younger son, <laughs> pointed to him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Kathy pledged to, to be around as much as she could. Yeah. Um, and the other producers were, were you know, were, were, were on deck. And, um, and so it was, uh, the whole, as, as we began to feel it working, um, it, was, uh, it was pretty thrilling, actually, and kind of affirming, in a way. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about the, the part of, you know, you're handed a lot of stuff like the cast and the crew, who are great people and great right. artists, uh, you know, designers, whatever. Uh, but like that train sequence, uh, right. the train, which is 
phenomenal. Yeah. Um, how much leeway do you have to like add your own mark to that? Oh, a lot, a you lot, do? a lot. Uh, the the action scenes were, uh, you know, they, you know, they'd been begun, but they were far from far from from completion, uh, and uh, uh, and there were a lot of question marks about about the, about those uh, yeah. those sequences. Uh, so, you know, there was a there was a you know that there was a, a lot of urgent. Um, you know, uh, is, is think like, tanking and brainstorming around those sequences. Is it like you have the designs and the models and the, the sets you're going to work with? Yes. But like what you do with them. Yes, and and, and 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 sort of what happens next. Here's the script. You know, here's some previses. Here's some. What else? What else can we do? Um, and the and 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 my goal there was to link the key action scenes um, as much as possible. To Han's experience, you know, I really, uh, I, I, I loved Bradford Young's approach. I thought it looked great. I, I, I was happy to inherit that, and and I loved the aesthetic. Um, and the, the the one thing that I wanted to do was was sort of more intentionally and purposefully um, stage the scenes and shoot them so that they you you felt like you were right alongside. Um, you know Han Solo on in, in this adventure as much as possible. I felt like that would generate a, a, a little more immediacy and suspense, um, you know, along with the humor and the excitement and the fun of, yeah. of those sequences. Um, you, you mentioned Bradford. The movie looks unlike any Star Wars movie to date, right. but you capture. You still are able to capture the tone and the adventure and the humor. Uh, is that a tough balance? Well, it's. It, it requires, uh, you know, a, a, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of work and and intention, um, and, uh, um, and 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 Bradford was uh, was really um, interested in that. You know, I mean, could you could you give the look that you know that that, that sort of carried those vibes? Bradford talks about you know a scene having having vibes, yeah, uh, and and still create the kind of character connection. Um, the the you know the the the, the, the cinematic urgency uh, and um, make the plot points clear enough uh, so that the narrative was hurtling along and they and he was you know uh, completely understood that and and uh, um, and and was was excited about that it required in some instances you know uh, uh, more coverage with that sort of purposeful coverage. Try to bridge things um, than uh, uh, than he might have expected, but he was you know he was excited in game. Yeah, you you have a long legacy with Lucas. Uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but, mm. <laughs> but um, you you were originally asked to do like one of the Star Wars prequels. Asked, but I I really want to underline that it wasn't like some sort of offer. It wasn't it wasn't yeah. like I I read the script and had an opinion. I, I he. Uh, when he was beginning to get serious about doing the, the, the prequels, uh, he reached out to a few people, and I was one of them, and just sort of dropped in conversation the question, you know, would you want to do one of these? Yeah. And, and I had already worked uh, uh, for George <laughs> on Willow, yeah. uh, and, uh, which was an amazing learning experience and life experience, uh, and deepened our friendship. Um, but at, at that point, we were really launching Imagine. I was, you know, focused on that. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't make any sense to me to disappear for a couple of years, um, you know, into a sequel. And I felt, 
And one of the things that I liked about this movie opportunity was that I didn't view it as a sequel. I, I, I viewed it as an offshoot. Yeah. Um, and it certainly, uh, you know, uh, uh, d- d- demanded, uh, um, a, 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 you know, a, a sort of fealty to the, the galaxy as we understand it. And, yeah. and, and an authenticity. And, and an authenticity in that regard. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it was a, it was a standalone movie. And, you haven't um, done many sequels. You've done like 35 films and only the Da Vinci Yeah, that's the, those are the only ones. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh. So, you know, uh, it's uh, an unusual set of circumstances that, let, you know, that led me to this, but I'm, I'm, gra- I'm grateful. Uh, I'm grateful for, for those twists, that twist of fate. Would you come back for more if, if they I would them? never say never. I just don't know what's going on at Imagine. And by the way, there's no plan. Yeah. So, so that wasn't uh, a step toward, uh, you know, um, 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 sequels. Uh, I love this cast, and I had so much fun. In, in this sort of the filmmaking playground that is this universe. And uh, so, you know, if, I, if the answer is I'd be very, very open to it. I have no idea, you know, whether they were even do So there you have it, Ron Howard. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with him. I'm so glad I got that opportunity. Uh, ben, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. You can also track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at Slash Film on Twitter. You can find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast on all the popular podcast sites. Please feel free to send us your questions. They could appear in the mailbag like they did for Owen in Los Angeles. Uh, just send them to Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.